I want to invite the rest of you to open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 6. And um, that song we just sang, the image of Christ as our shore and city anchor, comes from this passage that we're looking at uh, as we conclude chapter 6. I want to read verses uh, 13 through 20. And just to give you the context, if you're just joining us today, this is part of a a little bit of a broader discussion in in these um, middle chapters in Hebrews about our assurance. And so last week we were talking about one aspect of of how we can be sure that we are connected and united uh, to Jesus. And that has to do with with the good fruit that we can see in our lives and the lives of others. Uh, and that, that fruit is the evidence of life that is rooted in Jesus. So when you see that good fruit, yeah, there, there's, there's reason to be hopeful, reason to be sure that your life is connected to Jesus. But as good as that is, we have something even better here in, in these verses, something based outside of us, not in us, but, uh, but based in Christ and his his promise, even his oath. So let's stand in honor of God's word if you're able, and I'm going to read verses 13 through 20. For when God made a promise to Abraham, uh, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all of their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Lord, thank you for your word and for the comfort that it provides to us, not simply because you speak these words and they are true words, but in addition, because you give us an oath uh, to, to help us be more convinced uh, as, as an expression of your mercy, that we would know that you are our God, that we are your people. Through Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Please be seated. <clears throat> so I want to look at a few things in, in these verses. Let's, we'll start off by talking about God's promise uh, but, but then we also want to look at his oath, because those, those are two different things. Uh, he makes a promise, and then he seals it with an oath. Uh, and then ultimately, what that's going to take us to is the, 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 the security that we have through Jesus, who is our anchor. He's the one who guarantees that this oath uh, is, is going to be fulfilled. Um, so let's start off with the promise. And, um, and here we've got language that tells us about God's unchangeable character. Uh, and God's unchangeable purpose, because his, his character is unchangeable. Uh, these verses tell us that, in verse 18, that, that it's impossible for God to lie, right? Because of his unchangeable character, uh, the unchangeable character of his purpose. And, and as you think about 
you know, who God is. We, we know this to be true all over the Bible, uh, where it talks about God's eternality, and it talks about uh, how God doesn't change. We, we looked at that a couple of years ago when we were going through the prophet Malachi, where it says in chapter 3, I, the Lord, do not change. And and that makes sense, right? He's eternal. He's not like us. He doesn't have uh, fits and starts. He doesn't have good days and bad days. Uh, he's not moody. Um, he doesn't change his opinion. He, he doesn't, you know, he, he's not whimsical like we are. He just is steady and unchanging. Um, and there's a great place that we're not going to go into all of the, 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 the story behind it, but in the book of Numbers, there's this kind of bizarre encounter between uh, a prophet named Balaam and one of um, Israel's enemies, this king named Balak. Uh, and you remember when you used to be able to like um, dial a, a fortune teller or whatever, you know, you, you call 1-800 or something and, and they'll tell you your, your, your future. Well, back then you could, you could dial a prophet and the prophet would, uh, would, would could, you, you could hire the prophet to bless or curse, you know, the, the people, you know, depending on what you wanted. And so this king hires Balaam, and he wants Balaam to curse, you know, Israel. And Balaam says, I can't do that, um, you know, because these people are under God's protection. And, and when you pick up in Numbers chapter 23, Balaam took up his discourse and said, rise, Balak, and hear, and give ear to me, O son of Zippor. God is not man that he should lie or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said and will he not do it? Or has he spoken and will he not fulfill it? And so Balaam's explaining to this king, I can't change God's unchangeable character and his purpose to bless his people. God doesn't, you know, um, he's, he's not leveraged by the things that we do and, and the things that we say in order to do this or that. Uh, because his character is constant, his purposes, therefore, are constant. Verse 17 says, when God declared, when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, you know, he, he, he makes this oath. And this is a place where, okay, if God's character is unchanging, and if his purpose is unchanging, then, then it, it may occur to us, maybe it's already occurred to you, maybe we ought to know, gee, um, I'd like to know what that unchanging purpose is. If, if this is what's governing the universe, if this is the end, you know, since the foundation of things that, that toward which God is directing all things, if he has a purpose that's unchanging, then I'd sure like to know what that purpose is, right? Maybe I, maybe I can align my life somehow with that purpose and, and kind of go with the flow instead of against it, right? Um, and, and that would be a good thing for us to know. Well, we can know that, actually. As it turns out, uh, God tells us what his unchanging purpose is. Uh, it says it, actually, you can go to a bunch of places. Let me just take you to Ephesians chapter 1 as a, a good little sample, uh, a, a great summary of God's unchanging eternal purpose. Paul's writing to the Ephesians. 
Chapter 1, verse 4, right out of the gate, right? This is one of the first things he wants the Ephesians to kind of get this in your head. I don't want to paint this in front of you before I say everything else I'm going to say. In love, our God who has an unchanging character, in love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, According to the purpose of his will, that unchanging purpose, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. That's his purpose, is to adopt us, to to call together sons and daughters who would be a part of, of his forever family, to gather around his throne and to recognize he is the the source of all goodness and blessing and to find our eternally satisfying joy in relishing that, in, in, in worshiping the God who is unchanging in his character, unchanging in his purpose to, to bless us and to be gracious to us, to bless us in the beloved. How's that? For an unchanging purpose. Um, this is really just one way to express what we've already, you know, ref- seen referred to here in these verses. Um, that's a, a, you know, after Jesus has come, we look back and we can see God's purposes fulfilled in Jesus, his eternal purpose, unchangeable purpose fulfilled in Jesus. But before Jesus came, there was a different way it was expressed. It had to do with God's promise to call together a people to himself. He would be their God. We would be his people. And we see that reference uh, here uh, in, in our passage in Hebrews 6 that you know, God made a promise to Abraham. This is way, way back early on in, in uh, God's revelation, all the way back in Genesis chapter 22. And, and since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself saying, surely I will bless you and multiply you. Let me read you those verses out of Genesis 22. Because Hebrews doesn't actually include the oath that God made to Abraham. Genesis 22, the angel of the Lord called to Abraham, called him from heaven and said, by myself I have sworn. There's there's this oath that God takes. By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son. This is the whole incident with Isaac. He's your only son and I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand That is on the seashore. And this is a promise that God made thousands of years ago to this man named Abraham. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to multiply you. Your descendants are going to be my people. I'm going to be your God. You're going to be my people. And I'm going to bless you. And you're going to be satisfied in that blessing. I'm going to to watch over you. I'm going to care for you. I'm going to bring you into an eternally happy home. Right? This is this ancient promise and, and what's kind of crazy to think about is that God has pursued that purpose with an unrelenting determination, an unchanging uh, intentionality. And he's never veered from the right to the left. You and I, um, we, we struggle to be that consistent. Um, we, we get out of bed and one day, you know, we think we'd like to do this and the next day we want to do this. One day we wake up and we want pancakes and the next morning we wake up and we want Pop-Tarts. We don't know what we want. And God, for thousands of years, has had an unchanging purpose 
to call a people to himself. And the blessing of the gospel is that you and I are actually the inheritors of that promise. And when, when God tells Abraham, your descendants are gonna be more, you know, good luck counting the grains of sand, good luck counting the stars, your descendants are gonna be greater than you can possibly imagine. And this promise is applied to us today. We are the inheritors of that promise to Abraham. Paul tells the Galatians in chapter three, if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. That promise was meant for you. You and I are on the receiving end because God has this unchanging character, because in love he predestined us to be adopted as his sons and daughters according to his great mercy in Christ. Because that's his purpose, you and I are counted as Abraham's offspring on the receiving end of that eternal, unchanging purpose that he confirms with an oath. He makes that promise, and he says, by myself, I, I, I swear it. I'm, I'm, I'm making an oath, and he doubles down. Um, when God desired to show more convincingly, right? Verse 17, more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. Um, when do we make oaths? Uh, when, when do we do that kind of stuff? If you, if you think about the, the movies and the stories, uh, the times when, when people will make an oath is when eh, they're not very credible individuals in general. Like, you remember in uh, The Princess Bride and, you know, Wesley's trying to rescue Buttercup and he's got he's to climb the, the cliffs of insanity because, you know, Fezzik and everybody has run off with, with his princess. And Inega Montoya is at the top of the cliff and he's ready to, to, to duel you know, with Wesley and, and, um, and, and he's impatient because Wesley is climbing this rope up the cliffs of insanity. I don't suppose you can hurry. It's like, uh, you know, it's kind of slow going, right? He's got to climb these cliffs. Um, and, and Wesley says, well, you could throw me a rope or something. He said, yeah, I could do it, but I don't think you would you know, trust me. He's like, well, you know, you're right. You are waiting to kill me. That's... Uh, yeah. Well, is there anything I can do to make you, you know, confident that I, I won't, I won't, you know, that I'll, I'll, I'll make sure that you get to the top? And I said, well, not really. Nothing comes to mind. And then Inego Montoya says, I swear on the grave of my father, you will reach the top alive. Throw me the rope, Right? So when somebody's character is sort of questionable, you're, you're, you need something else to believe them. How, how about, how about um, Lord of the Rings? Frodo and Sam are heading to Mount Doom. They've got to destroy the ring. They don't know where they're going. But Gollum's following them. And Gollum's been there before. And Frodo knows that Gollum knows the way. And Sam's going, but we can't trust him as a guide. He's going to lead us to our death. He's going to take advantage of us because Gollum wants the ring. And so they're sort of stuck. Like, we don't know where we're going, but we need a guide, but we can't trust the one who does know the way. And so Frodo makes Gollum swear by the ring. Gollum swears by the ring because there's no greater power that Frodo knows to call upon in Middle Earth. It's the ring of power. It's the thing everybody wants. It's the thing that Soren wants. It's the thing that you know, all, all the armies want so that they can be the most powerful. 
And Frodo makes Gollum swear by the most powerful thing. And, and, and we make people take oaths when we really can't trust them. We make people take oaths when the, the stakes are high. And we need to make sure that they're going to follow through on what, what they're saying they're going to do. And the crazy thing is that God makes an oath. And he swears by the highest power that there is, right? In, in Matthew 23, Jesus says, and whoever swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits on it. Who else is God going to swear by than by himself? And, and this is how God doubles down on his promise to us. In verse 17, so when God desired to show more convincingly, like that's really key, he, he wants to show us, he wants to convince us that we can trust him, that his promise will be fulfilled, that he will make us his people, that we will be secure in our relationship with him. And he's making uh, this promise convincingly to us about the unchangeable character of his purpose, and he guarantees it with this oath that he swears by himself. So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement. God wants us to have strong encouragement and hold fast to the hope set before us, right? Because oaths bind us to our word. And they, 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 they convince the hearers that we are doubling down in our intentions. This, these are two things in which it is impossible for God to lie, right? Because of his unchanging character and because of his unchanging purpose, he will not lie. And in both of these categories, we can trust him and yet he still condescends to give us this oath. Why? Because we need more convincing. You know, it's Memorial Day weekend and tomorrow, you know, we're going to celebrate the fallen and remember them. Um, you know, when, when a man or a woman uh, joins the military and they go into to active service, uh, they have to go before uh, their officers and they take the oath of enlistment. Some of you have taken this oath and it's going to sound familiar to some of you, but the oath basically goes like this. I, you know, and you fill in your name, do solemnly swear that I will support and defend the Constitution of the United States against all enemies, foreign and domestic, and that I will bear true faith and allegiance to the same, and that I will obey the orders of the President of the United States and the orders of the officers appointed over me according to the regulations and the uniform code of military justice. So help me God. And men and women that take that oath, take that oath because they want to express publicly, I mean these words. It's not enough for them to report you know, to, to basic training and say, sure, I'm here to serve my country. That's not enough. They take this oath as a pledge, so help me God. And some take this oath to the extreme and they lay down their lives because they made that promise. Now, there's an interesting place in James where it actually might sound like we're not supposed to, as Christians, we're not supposed to take oaths. Um, in James, 
it says, above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no so that you may not fall under condemnation. And so um, based on, on that passage, there, there are some Christian traditions that say, you know, no, you shouldn't take an oath and, and you know, it's against their conscience to do so because they think, I'm just going to let my yes be yes and my no be no. Personally, I think that's really more the, the, the content, the context of, of what James is saying. Be the kind of person who people can trust. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. But if there are occasions where others require you to take an oath, I think it's okay. We're just supposed to be people of integrity, right? We're supposed to remind people of God's unchanging character where he does not lie. He tells the truth. That's the kind of people that we're supposed to represent to the world. We're supposed to let our yes be yes and our no be no because God's yes is yes and God's no is no. And so what is God doing taking an oath? Can't we trust him? Do you trust him? This is, this is part of what's remarkable about God's humility and mercy. Like, so if you say something to your kid, um, hey, I need you to, or, or, or I'm going um, to, I'll take you to, to practice or I'll take you to the game or I'll, I'll take you to the movies or whatever. And your kid says, well, I don't know if I believe you. Can you swear on, a, you know, on your Bible that you'll do that? And, and what's your reaction going to be? What, what do you mean? Am I untrustworthy? What do you mean I, you want me to take an oath and I'm going to do this thing for you? I'm your dad or I'm your mom or whatever, you know? Like, we don't, does, does, does God get bowed up? Does he get defensive about our need to be more convinced that he's telling us the truth? No. He delights to do this. He, he eagerly takes this oath to convince us because we, we need more convincing. And he took this oath to the extreme. And he laid down his life for his friends, for us. And he didn't change. He didn't break his oath when it, when it got hard, when it got dark, when it got painful. He didn't turn to the right or to the left. He is thinking of us. He is merciful to us. He knows that we're afraid. He knows that we're anxious. He knows we doubt. He knows we need reassurance. And by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, he reassures us. So if it's impossible for God to lie when making a promise, how much more when making an oath? Can we trust him? Yes. This is what Hebrews is calling our anchor, this hope, this, this hope based on God's trustworthiness, that he, he's, he even goes so far as to make an oath when we can trust his first word. And then he says, you know what? I'm going to just double it down and reassure you. And that's why we have this hope, this, this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. We've mentioned before how uh, just drenched, how soaking wet Hebrews is with all these Old Testament references, just quoting again and again and again the Old Testament. And this is another one of those things, so I'm not going to go into all the details, but that, that inner place behind the curtain is, is a reference to the most holy place, 
first in the tabernacle and then in the temple. So you've got the courtyard and then you've got the holy place and then you've got the most holy place. The most holy place is separated from the holy place by this thick, impenetrable veil or curtain. And nobody should go in there except for once a year on the Day of Atonement, and that's the high priest. Um, just a quick, quick reference to Leviticus 16. The Lord said to Moses, tell Aaron, your brother, not to come at any old time into the, most, into the holy place or the most holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat that is on the ark, that he may not die, right? Like that's a bad thing to just kind of cavalierly do that whenever you want. Instead, the high priest has to come once a year on the Day of Atonement. Uh, he has to bring a sin offering and a burnt offering for, for himself, for his own sins. He has to bring a sin offering and a burnt offering for the people, for, for their sins. He has to have all the vestments, you know, the, the, the head covering, the, the robe, the, the sash, the undergarments, and, and all that. He has to wash. He's got to go through all of this, you know, um, structure according to the Lord's word, in order to be that high priest, to represent the people, to offer the atoning sacrifice. And God makes this promise. For on this day shall atonement be made for you to cleanse you. You shall be clean before the Lord from all your sins. Which is actually a beautiful promise. Because Everywhere, uh, at all times, and, and um, anthropologists and sociologists all confirm this, that human beings want to be clean, uh, not, not just physically, spiritually. Everywhere you go, at all times and ages, and, and anywhere in the world, there are two things that seem to be apparent in every culture. So people have a concept of the divine who, who, who exists in a place, a holy place, and that we recognize we, we don't, by nature, by default, have access to that place. And so all you know, cultures have this sort of, they, they don't have to agree on their understanding and their concept of God, but they all agree that there's such a thing as a divine realm, and I don't ordinarily have access to that. I need help getting there. I'm not clean, <laughs> and I need some rules, some some priest, I need some ceremony, I need something to, to cleanse me so that I can be in the presence of that divine being. And, and this promise, starting in the Old Testament and culminating in Jesus, is God's good news to the world, that that cleanliness that we seek, that we long for, don't we all want to be clean it's offered to us in Jesus. Jesus guarantees our access behind the veil. He gives us access into God's presence. He cleanses our sins. He atones for them and takes them away on his cross as our sin-bearing substitute. And through his resurrection, he's, he declares that it's, the work is finished, it's done, and you who are united to me can come into God's presence with me. And this very sort of almost as an aside reference, when Jesus was crucified, we're told that the veil in the, in the temple was torn from top to bottom, giving us access into God's presence through Jesus. This is the anchor that we have. Jesus, who is our forerunner, 
who has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So last week, you know, we were looking at how um, God bakes into our sanctification uh, this aspect of assurance. If you're bearing good fruit, then that's, you know, evidence that the root is good, that, that our root is in, in Jesus. <laughs> but if you're like me, the fruit can be inconsistent. And so if that is the only basis of our assurance, that leaves us a little bit vulnerable. It leaves us vulnerable to times when the, the, the fruit isn't there. Um, maybe you've wandered into sin and I don't know how I, I'm, I'm in the weeds. I, I don't really know how I got here, but here I am nonetheless. And we repent and that's how we get out of the weeds. Or you have an experience like our fathers and mothers historically have described as the dark night of the soul. Where God just feels very, very far away, and your prayers are bouncing off of a metal ceiling. Or, um, I don't know, God's been good to you, and life's been good, it's been sort of smooth, not without, you know, struggle, and yeah, you have to pray, and, and, and you're, you're working hard, but, but man, like, I'm just racking up the winds, man, it's been good. I'm, I'm overcoming, right? Praise the Lord, praise Jesus. What happens when there's not W's in that column, but, but L's, and you start feeling more losses, and you start feeling like not so much an overcomer, but I, I, I've, been, I've been ran over. Um, and Lord, where are you, right? So if our assurance is simply based on you know, the fruit that we see, we are vulnerable. But what if the assurance, what if there was a deeper assurance that wasn't based on me or you or something subjective in us? What if our assurance came from outside of us? What if our assurance came from, from Jesus himself, right? What if Hebrews is, is right that there's uh, an assurance that we can have that's dependent on his word and not our activity? That's dependent on his love and, and not our fickle affections, right? That's what Jesus is doing for us. That's why he's our anchor for our soul. That's why he's the forerunner on our behalf because he is the one who has gone into presence guaranteeing that we will finish with him. This is why Tim Keller could say, the great basis of Christian assurance is not how much our hearts are set on God, but how unshakably his heart is set on us. There's, um, let me, I'll close with this. There's this really kind of, uh, I, I loved it when I saw it, uh, this video that's gone viral, and it's on YouTube and Instagram or whatever. It's Alistair Begg. Some of you have read his books. Uh, and he's preaching... Uh, I think it's from 2019 or whatever, and he's Scottish, and so it sounds awesome. But, uh, but he's preaching, and, and he's talking about the, the thief on the cross, right? And, uh, and he imagines that thief on the cross who, who goes to heaven, and, uh, and, and he's sort of being um, like interviewed by a couple of angelic border control agents, right? Heaven's border control. Like, what are you doing here? And, and, and Alistair Begg says, I can't wait to, to, to talk to this fella because I, I just, I want to know how it, how did this shake out for you, right? Like, like you never, you've, you've, been, you've been cussing this guy out with your friend and, and you had this change of heart. And now, um, now you're here and you never, you'd never been to church. 
Uh, you, you'd never read your Bible. You were never baptized. Like, and you made it, right? You, here you are. You made it. How did you make it? And, and Alistair Begg says, you know, I can imagine the angel having the same, same conversation with him. Like, what are you doing here? And the guy says, I don't know. What do you mean you don't know? I mean, I don't, I don't know. How can you, how can you, hold on. Get, wait right here for a second. And he goes and gets the supervisor angel, right? The, the other guy and says, sir, we just have a few questions for you. Um, this won't take about a minute. Can you, can you please describe for us the doctrine of uh, justification? I've never heard of that in my life. Uh, well, okay. Can you please tell us about the atonement? Nope. I, I don't know what you're talking about. Okay, how about just scripture? Just, just throw you a softball. Just tell us about the doctrine of scripture. I, I've never read the Bible in my life. Well, what, on what basis are you here? And the thief on the cross who's now in heaven says, well, I don't really know. All I know is that the man on the middle cross said I could come. His word, not my activity. You know, the cross was this instrument of torture. It was a, a means of capital punishment designed not just to, to inflict a sentence on the guilty person, but to send a message to the nations, don't mess with Rome. And the person didn't die from blood loss or, or whatever, they died from asphyxiation. Because as they hung there, the weight of their body would just you know, drag them down. And anytime they needed a, a breath, anytime they needed air in their lungs, they'd have to push up the weight of their body on those nails. And eventually you, you can't do it anymore. That's how you die. So can you imagine the effort required to speak as you're hanging on a cross? It kind of gives you a window into the, the, the venom in, in the soul of the other thief, you know, using his precious energy and air to insult Jesus. And it gives you a window in the desperation of, of, of this thief, the repentant thief. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. But more than that, it again gives us a window into the mercy of Jesus, who didn't just take a half a breath and say, yeah, sure. Who didn't just take a whole breath and say, today, you will be with me in paradise. He took an extra breath because he took an oath. I tell you the truth. Today you will be with me in paradise. That's his oath. And that's his mercy to us. Let's pray. Lord, we give you thanks for your kindness, your compassion, your patience to, to deal with our, our, our doubt, our anxiety, our, our, um, our insecurity, and to be so kind as to not only give us a promise that we would be your people, that you would be our God because of Jesus being our forerunner, 
Jesus being our high priest, Jesus making us clean. All these things are, are beyond wonderful and beyond beautiful, but you go beyond and make an oath so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we could have an anchor for our souls. We can have real hope, real assurance, not just based on the fruit that we see that you're bearing in our lives, but the fruit of Jesus and his promise and his oath to us. If there are any here who aren't sure if that promise and that oath is directed to them, please, through your Holy Spirit, give them that assurance. Help them to call on Jesus as their high priest and their savior and king. And we all worship him in Jesus' name.